0: Welcome to this episode of the Katie and Me Podcast. I'm Katie and I'm here with the remarkable Chris Hutchinson. And we've got some cool stuff to talk about today. Uh, Chris, who's bringing this episode to us?
1: I don't know how remarkable I am, but I, I do appreciate it. It's always good to see you, Katie. This episode today is sponsored by the Allen Williams Realty Group. Allen Williams is a local top real estate agent who specializes in the Fishers and Geist Indiana markets. Allen has over 26 years of experience and has helped everyone from first-time home buyers to Super Bowl champions. With 13 real estate websites, Alan gets the exposure his clients deserve. To learn more about Allen and his client-centered approach, visit fishersrealestate.com or fishersluxuryhomes.com, and fishers is F I S H E R S. Also, you can call Allen at 317 317- Fishers. So thanks so much to Alan and his sponsorship for this episode. So we appreciate Alan Williams Realty Group for sponsoring this episode. So Katie, uh, it's always a pleasure to see you. And you. It's been an interesting couple of weeks. And as I was preparing for the show, I was kind of reminiscing about some pretty cool traveling and things that I'd done earlier in life. So today I wanna talk about a trip I made to the Soviet Union in 1990. So I still had hair back then, it was red, I looked like a giant pumpkin, Uh, and I was part of a singing group called the Bowling Green High School Madrigal Singers. And in 1990, we were fortunate Enough to go on tour in the Soviet Union over um, what would have been like Easter and spring break time. Uh, So there were 16 of us that traveled there and we had chaperones, et cetera. But what made it really interesting was for those that maybe aren't up to date on their 1990 history, the Soviet Union and the Baltic states were right in the middle of, uh, the Baltic states were trying to secede from the Soviet Union. So we were going right kind of in the height of this, which wasn't planned. You know, the trip obviously had taken some time to, to be planned out. So needless to say, there were a number of, worried parents about sending <laughs> about sending sixteen, you know, fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen year olds to the Soviet Union while there was this, you know, potential secession. So obviously it was a really, really memorable trip. And I know that you're a big television star with your own TV (laughs) show um, in the Southeast with Katie on the farm, but I've also been on the small screen. So it was really cool. This trip, there was actually a documentary crew that went with us uh, and it was funded through Bowling Green State University and WBGU, which was the local TV channel there for the university. So we had a film crew with us for this entire two-week trip.
0: How cool.
1: Yeah, and um, the name of the documentary is breathe on me breath of god which is actually a, a song and one of the songs that we sang on the tour so when you're bored sometime you can try and go out and find the documentary <laughs> and just see how good looking i was with with uh, a big big head of red <laughs> hair <laughs> So a couple things about this trip that were pretty memorable. Obviously, the entire experience—being 17 years old in a communist country, going on tour and, and singing—I th- think we sang eight or ten concerts in about a week and a half—was w- pretty amazing. But one that that has stuck with me is we visited a Nazi concentration camp memorial. And so to be you know 15, 16, and 17 years old, and to have read about the horrors of uh, Nazi Germany and everything associated with uh, the war. Uh, To read about it or see movies about it was was one thing, but to have a guided tour in a memorial camp was entirely different. It was very emotional, as you can probably imagine. I
0: I really, I don't think I can imagine. I think about that when people tell me they've gone to them and I'm like, I don't, I feel like I would collapse.
1: I was a 17 year old young man. You kind of want to have an ego, and you know, hey, I'm I'm this cool high school kid. I know it all. Uh, I was pretty I, I was pretty impacted by it. There was definitely a lot of tears shed by everybody. Uh, we had an amazing tour guide who really understood the history and was really able to explain in detail, the lives that were lost and what each memorial statue meant and represented. It's something that still stays with me now. And to kind of be able to see that living history made it much different and much more impactful than you know, just reading about it. So that's definitely something from that trip that I will always remember. And then another key thing that I want to talk about is we had this amazing opportunity to visit a music school in Moscow that was K through 12, essentially kindergarten through 12th grade students, that was entirely dedicated to music. So they would have music theory, music history, you know, uh, instruments, vocal. It was an impressive display. And to see the theory and comprehension that kindergarten, first, second, third grade students knew, uh, I think would maybe have been comparable to what high school or college kids in the U.S. were learning. So to see how regimented they were, but how much they really enjoyed it. And then to be able to kind of do a mutual concert back and forth with them was also really, really powerful and pretty cool to see. So obviously the style of teaching was probably a little bit more um, (laughs) dictatorish than what we're accustomed to, you know, in the United States, but I'll never forget it. I'll never forget how just uh, well-versed and knowledgeable these mm-hmm. students were, even at a really young age. Uh, and so that was, that was pretty impressive. And then lastly, I'll wrap up here because I, I know my segment's almost over, but we got to visit Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which were part of the Baltic states that were in the process of trying to secede from the Soviet Union. And when we were there, we didn't see any major demonstrations. There was no, you know, military conflict. We didn't see any of that. But we got to meet students our age and maybe a little bit older, particularly in Estonia, that were really passionate about a free Estonia and having their own identity and having their own country and and to have them tell us that they dream of freedom and were so envious and appreciative of what we represented as students from the United States and the freedoms that we had, again, was also just really mind-boggling and and left an imprint to kind of see, gosh, things that we may – take for granted like just everyday freedoms were things that they just they wanted so badly to have an opportunity mm-hmm. to have so i could talk for hours about this trip but <laughs> oh, i understand sure. that we try and try and keep this you know under a specific time frame but i thought i would share that with you today just you know it's stuff that That I still think about now, 20 some years later that, you know, really left, left an impact.
0: Yeah. It sounds like that was a really good age to start traveling like that.
1: Yeah. You know, I was really fortunate uh, at the time I had a good voice. I don't think I do so much anymore because I don't really sing very much anymore, but. Well, thank um, (laughs)
0: God for me. You don't have to have a good voice to travel or I'd be locked in my house.
1: So, yeah, for the 16 of us, um, I'm still friends with, you know, nearly everybody that went on that trip or in communication in some way, shape or form with them. And um, we'll never forget it. So um, I will leave this out there. If you guys are ever interested in learning a little bit more about that trip, you can actually go on YouTube and look for the Breathe Ami Breath of God documentary Uh, And it actually ended up winning an Emmy Award. Oh, wow. I didn't, but (laughs) the documentarians did. So it's an Emmy Award-winning documentary called Breathe On Me, Breath of God. And if you want to learn a little bit more about my trip, feel free to to give it a look on YouTube. So with that, I will pause and turn it over to you, Katie, and uh, interested to hear what you're going to talk to us about today.
0: I know this is shocking, but we're going to talk about food again. (laughs) <laughs>
1: Good, because that's what you're an expert in. So
0: Right. So the holidays just came and went and there's a lot of baggage that we all carry. You know, we give ourselves permission at the holidays and then we have New Year's and we kick ourselves for, right. you know, and we're like, I'm going to change right. my life now and yeah. I'm going to change everything. And and um I don't know about you, but I grew up with family members, not all of them, but a, a significant number of family members who were always on some kind of uh, like diet, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there was like weeks of cabbage soup and there was no no carbohydrates right. for a while. You know, the the joke when I was younger was, how do you know someone's on the Adkins diet? Because they, they tell you. About tell it. you. Yeah, right. yeah. And now I think it's, you <laughs> know, like keto. keto. Yeah. yeah. And paleo, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they're on that. So I grew up kind of as a spectator to fad diets.
1: Were you a participant? Were you a forced participant at all?
0: Uh, no, not really. My parents, my parents didn't make the children eat like that or anything, but there's a lot of social context around it and, you know, you go places and how do you navigate a restricted diet and all mm-hmm. of that. I mean, this is a billion dollar, sure. billions dollar industry, right? And we would be in better shape if we understood just a little bit about our food culture and if we didn't do fad diets at all. Mm-hmm. We would be healthier if we didn't do fad diets at all as a people and we would waste less money that we could then spend on healthy food. Mm-hmm. So I'm not even gonna, going to going to purport to have some grand design for a perfect diet that you have for the rest of your life. But something I think we need to understand is that if it's a temporary diet, there should be a medical purpose, Mm -hmm. not just losing weight, right? Weight's a symptom of things in your life. So I tell people never diet, I don't literally mean never diet, right? I have a friend with an autoimmune disorder; she's going on a diet. There mm-hmm. are uh, my kids had food allergies. We did elimination sure. diets, added things back in. There are reasons, or medical reasons, to diet, but. On the whole, fad diets are a bad idea. You're not going to a year from now on a fad diet be in better shape than you were. In fact, you statistically won't be on it anymore. So you need to consider your diet as a lifelong eating plan Okay, that can be augmented based on better information. But I would never go into a diet for the sake of losing weight for 30 days or 90 days or six months. Mm-hmm. So when you look at a way to eat as your total diet, it needs to be something that you can sustain. And you have to figure out what kind of mental acrobatics and framing needs to be done once you decide to frame it in a way that when you are having a hard time getting in new habits, that you can get there. So there's a self-awareness component. But I think sometimes most importantly, there's a cultural awareness component. We're not a country that started with deep roots in a food culture, right? Right. We're a pretty new Country and we're a conglomeration of different food cultures. Right. So we don't really in the United States get to harken back to very much. Usually yeah, what you to, hear,
1: there's not a lot back to right. pull back a reference. Yeah.
0: Right. What we what we usually hear is people going back to what their grandparents ate. Mm-hmm. Right. Not this cheese was made here in 1200. Right. Right. Like in parts of France, mm-hmm. or this ham has been graced on these acorns in these mountains for 700 years.
1: Right. We don't right. In the,
0: yeah, in the United States, we say, well, we eat biscuits and cornbread because we've been doing it for four generations. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, you know, we're, it's a relatively shallow history. And so without a coherent food culture, we have tried to create and cling to food traditions in, in this place that are not rooted in a biologically healthy
1: idea. Do you think some of that stems from that were a culture of convenience as well.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So humans in general, particularly in the Western world, were lured into a, a desire to have the diet of the wealthy, mm-hmm. right? So we started getting like white breads, highly refined grains, and then white breads, and all these things that are really not good for us. And uh, all this fluffy stuff. And we moved away from whole foods right. as wealth grew and as goods were traded around. And in in the United States, without those kind of anchor foods, we are really susceptible to convenience and highly processed foods. And really, um, if you look at Betty Crocker mixes and Homec in the 50s and all kinds of things. A lot of that was designed by the corporate world and by food labs.
1: Powdered versions of food Mm -hmm. where you can just add water. Yes,
0: yes. Things that are not recognizable to the body because they have been denatured. Mm -hmm. And our waistlines and our illnesses to some extent are a result of that, to a large extent are a Mm -hmm. result of that. So these ubiquitous temporary diets are everywhere and we go on this roller coaster and what we do is we further destabilize and break our system, our body. And what I would suggest is that you are better off making one change and really making it stick and then making another change and really making it stick and thinking of a diet as and we all have a diet. We're all on a diet. Everyone's right. on a diet. So this idea that it should change all the time doesn't make a lot of sense. So, you know, whether that is, I really am going to figure out how to kick cigarettes or pop or something mm-hmm. that is really not something we should be ingesting and switch to water. Once I become a water drinker all the time, And then you say, all right, I'm going to go from three servings of produce a day to six. And when that becomes a habit, and then 10 years down the road, you are on a solid path built on habit. And overall healthier instead of just appearance-based. right? Sure. And that's the way we need to be looking at health. So, yeah, I tell people never diet. And the caveat to that is never diet to lose weight gotcha. specifically and only. But you should adapt your permanent diet to be one that is aimed at overall health. You make permanent changes, which is really less intimidating to me. The yeah. idea of saying I'm going to change this one thing and I'm going to figure out how to change it forever or for the next 10 years, Mm -hmm. if you don't like forever language, some people don't, (laughs) you know? And and when you say that, then you've made a change that in 10 years, you're going to look back and say, I am so glad I did that because there is this buildup of positive results from that. And really what it is, is it's reversing the things that we've done as a culture to Mm -hmm. our permanent diet. We really want to look at reversing the introduction of the highly refined stuff into your diet. Anyway, so... Don't diet. Don't diet. Don't live on cabbage (laughs) soup. Don't, don't live on heavy cream and bacon. Don't, whatever the thing is at the time, ask yourself, you know, is this something that is whole and is it nutritive? And if it is, then, then the rest should be between you and your doctor and some common sense.
1: So before we put a wrap on this, I do want to ask one question. What is, let's take me because I, you know, I work out, but I Definitely uh am not as selective with what I eat. Uh and in the last episode I was really feeling guilty after listening to everything that you were talking about. But (laughs) don't feel guilty. But what is like so for an average person like myself, what is I you know, I still sometimes drink pop. I still, if I'm in a pinch, will go to a fast food restaurant. What's like one simple thing that I could maybe try uh and get in the habit of doing that you think would would be beneficial?
0: Don't drink any sweetened drink. Okay, and I'm including non-sugar sweeteners. Okay, don't drink sweeteners. So if you if you anything with
1: Splenda or anything like that, don't drink it. I wouldn't do any
0: of it. Okay, you can retrain your taste buds. Gotcha. And once you retrain your taste buds, like if I get a sip of any kind of pop, it is so cloyingly sweet, I want to vomit. Like I really have a physical negative reaction to it because I stopped drinking it when I was 18. I'm maybe well past that, more than twice that now, right? So I, well, Now
1: you're 28, right? Right,
0: right. Yeah. But I mean, once you've reprogrammed your taste buds, which is largely a function of sure. your gut bacteria, you starve off the bacteria that are used to having those things that are negatives. It's an enormous difference. Mm-hmm. And, and you got to think there are organs processing that out. And the result of drinking sugar and flooding your system with straight fructose is that uh, your liver has to produce fat. It's mm. just like alcoholism right. in that regard. Your liver has to produce fat to deal with that. And that's where we get all of this kind of thing. So that is the number one thing I tell people is drink water and drink a lot of water. Okay. You should wake up in the morning and just, just what you've respirated right. out in water, you
1: should be thirsty. You should be drinking water. That's super important. So. so I'm always looking for kudos. Did you notice I didn't bring an energy drink today and I did just bring water? I noticed. Okay. And,
0: yeah. and I don't want to make anyone feel guilty. Every one of us is a flawed human, but we're on this trip together, right? Yes,
1: absolutely. Well, thank Thank you, Katie. That was awesome let me talk a little bit about our next topic. Before I do that, once again, today's episode is sponsored by the Allen Williams Realty Group. Alan has over 26 years of experience and focuses primarily on houses in the Fishers and Geist, Indiana markets. If you're interested in learning more about him and his team, please visit fishersrealestate.com estate.com or Fishers He can also be reached at three one seven Fishers and Fishers is F F-I-S-H-E-R-S. So thanks again to Alan and his team. Okay, great. We are going to move into our final topic of the day. And what we're going to talk about is what teachers wish the rest of us knew about their jobs. I think this is an excellent topic. And Katie, I know you have some teacher friends. I have some teacher friends as well. Teachers just They just do not get enough love in the world, (laughs) in my opinion. I think they're some of the hardest working people on the planet and probably the least uh, compensated for it. So I'm excited to talk a little bit about this today. Uh, A friend of mine named Kristen, who is a former elementary school teacher and is now a uh, English as a second language teacher online for uh, Chinese students – uh, talked to me a little bit about her experience as an elementary school teacher. And she said that the one most important thing I wish people would know is how much time teachers pour into their students and their classroom. A lot of people think that teachers have it easy. It's an 8 to 3 p.m. job. And as soon as the students are gone, they're done for the day. That's the furthest from the truth. We spend so much of our personal time focused on our students This is the time that we do not get paid for. This could be grading papers, creating lesson plans, decorating the classroom, shopping for supplies, and a lot of times using their own money to pay for those supplies, answering emails, allowing extra study time for the students to meet them, volunteering to run school clubs or even attending their students' extracurricular activities. This is all the things that take away from times with their own families, and again, it's not time that they get paid for teachers do not go into the profession for the money they go into it because they are passionate about it and i think that is it hits the nail on the head mm-hmm. perfectly i mean mm-hmm. every teacher that i know will not hesitate to go the extra mile for their students will not hesitate to spend money out of their own pocket to you know provide supplies for their students etc i don't think many people in the world think that they're going to become a teacher to become rich it is something that you have to have a passion for you know she said some pretty touching things in here, particularly having to have time away from your family. And, and, you know, that's a that's a big commitment and it's a big sacrifice. You know, I think that can probably take its toll uh, on teachers. And it's probably why it's challenging to retain good teachers for, you know, super long periods of time, just because of, of the grind with it. So was there anything in there, Katie, that jumped out at you about what Kristen said?
0: No, I did have a lot of people on My feed and messenger kind of echo things that she had said. Yeah,
1: it's hard. It's hard being a teacher, and and I think um, you know one thing that I would love to leave people with is you know when you see a teacher, thank them, (laughs) because their jobs are very thankless, and I think require an inordinate amount of effort in order to um, help students. More and more, there's you know I know that there are uh, student teacher limits, but more and more schools are at that max in terms of, you know, how many students per teacher and, you know, integrating students of all abilities into one classroom. And so, you know, there's just more and more challenges that are thrown teachers way with less and less resources sometimes. So definitely thank a teacher for their service. And I personally, you know, this is just me, but I don't care where I live or when my daughter is done with school, I will always support, you know, teacher levies whenever possible because we all had the opportunity to go to school and we all had the opportunity to have access to those teachers. And I just hope that, you know, if I'm in a position where even if I don't have kids in the school system anymore, that I'm still actively trying to support those teachers.
0: Yeah. Supporting education really has little to do with whether or not you have your own child in the
1: system because none of us want to
0: live in a society where we're less educated, right? right? We we all benefit when everyone's (laughs) as educated as possible. Yeah. And I had some great feedback here. They talked about things that as a parent did strike me as kind of comforting. Mm -hmm. Every kid has a weird or awkward stage, lies, acts strange around other children, has relationships that don't work. And the teacher has to deal with the fact that two kids in the room can't be near each other. You know, there's like, it's not just my kids. (laughs)
1: So that's good. (laughs) That's really good to know as a
0: parent that, that, you know, they really do have just so much exposure to other kids that their judgment, they're trained professionals and they're in the environment and we need to trust their judgment on the classroom and on our children. And on top of that, when I was told, you know, don't be embarrassed about your kids going through bad years or weeks or whatever it is, you know, they also said you can be embarrassed but your kid is not something you use as like a trophy to show how great you are. You right. don't compete with other people through your children. You don't, you know, you need to have some kind of perspective and teachers because they're in that environment have that perspective. So I think it's frustrating sometimes when they have to deal with us. Um, and all of parents' hang-ups, right? right? It's easy to feel insecure as a parent, too. And, sure. and they're navigating the kids and their own lives and their own families and our hang-ups and yeah. our expectations. Yeah,
1: the teachers are having to manage helicopter parents, which right. uh, is never, is never
0: <laughs> right. a fun thing. Yeah. So. The other thing that I heard from a couple of people is that the tests that the kids do, like standardized mm-hmm. tests, that – we don't really need to freak out about them. They, right. they are not necessarily any kind of indicator as to how our child is going to do as an adult. And that was, you know, when my kids do really well on those, I get all excited and I'm super, super happy. But if they're not doing well, it, you know, it shouldn't that's be what I'm going to run to this advice and right. go, okay, well, yeah. it's all right. It's all right. You know?
1: Yeah. Well, um, I think we've become kind of a nation of uh, being focused on you know test results yeah um, and unfortunately a lot of schools are funded by how mm-hmm. well their students do on those tests so yeah. uh, i understand why there's anxiety around them and i'm mm-hmm. with you i try and not live or die by my daughter's test results yeah um but even if we're uber supportive of our daughter regardless of the results The students are starting to feel like the pressure. I mean, they put a tremendous amount of pressure on themselves already at a young age. And that's not to say that being able to be exposed to challenges and dealing with that pressure from a young age, those are going to give you some skills later in life. But I agree. I don't think that how you do on a standardized test in fourth grade should make or break whether or not you're going to be a successful right. you know, young person or an adult. So right. um, so yeah, I, I, that's another topic that we could probably spend another couple of hours discussing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, th- I think teachers are really happy to have an outlet. Yeah, where they I can... agree. <laughs>
1: And uh we do try and stick to a specific format so I will just mention that we may revisit this topic again in the future and if teachers or anyone is interested in sharing their thoughts uh, about what we talked about today, you can reach us on Twitter at at Katie and me pod or on Instagram at Katie and me podcast. Uh, if you'd prefer to email us, you can email either Katie or myself at Chris at katieandme.com or katie at katieandme.com and katie is always k-a-t-y with that i think we'll probably put a wrap on today's show any parting thoughts katie
0: no, I would love some time to sit down with you and someone else who's traveled more recently to what is now Season Russia. See some changes. Yeah. yeah, and kind of compare your stories and your impressions. I'd like so. to get
1: back there and, and do some comparison myself. So hopefully maybe a future episode I can do that.
0: Yeah, I've got the travel bug. Thanks for <laughs> that story. All right. Thanks, All right, Chris. Katie.